who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, the last of our forgotten interviews. This one is with David Blomenberg, who was one of the participants in the Downtown Writers Jam. He was wonderful, wonderful. Oh, my God, his performance was great. Um, you can find all those up at thegeekypress.com. You can actually find everything we do there. We have monthly, quarterly, yearly writing events. We have readings, and we have our first book, Bad Jobs and Bullshit, which is an anthology published from the best fiction, nonfiction, and poetry that we solicited from around the world. We had about 75 submissions, and I think there's about 30 in the book, 25, 30 in the book, um, about, this is a well-named book, uh, Bad Jobs and Bullshit. So you can find that at Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, but if you go to thegeekypress.com backslash books, you will find our stuff. So David uh, is a great writer. Um, essayist and performer Um, and we spent a lot of time talking about how he um, combines all of those things together so since this is one of the lost interviews this was um, recorded about 18 months ago um, before the podcast fell off the side of the cliff Um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing it because you need to get to listening to David right now So the first time I didn't know who you were, and I think 
Sarah Laid somebody I think it was Sarah Layden told me mm-hmm. you would be great for the jam. Okay. So Oh and Sal. I think Oh Sal. maybe it was Sal. Maybe it was Might Sal Payne who mm-hmm. said. So how do you know Sal? Uh I know him just from uh I think uh, Kevin McKelvey uh recommended me to do a reading and I met Sal through uh-huh. through that reading. And then uh that was a down at uh down at the uh, Murphy building. I don't know. It's not the Murphy building, mm-hmm. but it's the one over on Fountain Square. Uh-huh. And then the students must have liked me because they asked me to come back. Yeah. So I had a reading over at the Kurt Vonnegut Library. Okay. And now, do you teach? Is that do you teach? I, I have up until recently. I was teaching at Purdue and also t- taught for uh, someone leaving for paternity mm-hmm. reasons f- um, for a semester at DePauw. Okay. So are you from here? How do you end up in Indiana? I've, I was born in Columbus and then grew up in Iowa. Columbus, Indiana. Columbus, Indiana. Uh-huh. And then I'm from in Ohio, so that means something totally oh, different. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. That's a, a bigger town. <laughs> yeah. And, and then grew up in Iowa and came back, I think, sixth grade, moved to Fort Wayne. The, the so land you know all the big towns. Yes, yes. You know, <laughs> metropolis after metropolis. And then uh, came to uh, Indianapolis after I graduated from college. So you you spent the up until about sixth grade in I, where in Iowa? West Branch, Iowa, birthplace of Herbert Hoover. It's. I was just telling a friend of mine, you can always tell how big a town is based on the trivia that comes after it. Okay. Right? Like, if you're, um, my friend said, oh, Fort Wayne, like, they have the biggest Abraham Lincoln. I'm like, that just tells you it's a small town. Mm-hmm. If they're, like, immediately like, oh, we have the biggest ball of string, like, there's nobody there. Because <laughs> um, nobody in New York is like, oh, we're home of the ant farm. Like, it's like, we're fucking New York. That's where we're from. Exactly. So, why did you move there? Your parents' job? Like, it was, military? Yeah, it was my parents' job. Uh, he, my dad, uh, was doing some work in the School of Medicine at the University of Iowa, which is in Iowa City, yep. about 10 miles away. We lived in West Branch, population 550. <laughs> and I had a paper route. It was all very, you know, uh, I don't know what you would imagine a, a Midwest upbringing to be in uh-huh. a little tiny town with, you know, paper route and all that stuff. Was it a lot of university people or was it like a, did you guys live outside of that sort of Oh, very much outside of that. So it was... These were farmers. This was a rural... It was just a little teeny town. There was a little cafe. The owner of the cafe's name was Olive and occasionally she'd give me a free candy bar. It was one of those kind of little tiny town things. Yeah. Uh, And did were you writing and doing like arty stuff back then like as a kid or what were you like? I kind of was looking back because when I was, uh, I think it was fourth grade... Uh, during the summer, I had started reading The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And by the time I got to the first month of school, I had written a, I think, completely outrageously long at the time for someone in fourth grade, 47 page long, complete ripoff of The Silver Chair. <laughs> Only instead, I put myself in it, and right. then all of my friends had them in it. Right. And, and you were there, and, and you, you were, were there, there. yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then when it came time to to hand in a a little short story, I I just gave Mrs. Johnson this this fifty page manuscript as my as my story, and uh-huh. she kind of flipped out. Uh-huh. So yeah, there were there was a point in the afternoon where she would have me 
read little excerpts to the class. Really? Yeah. You were yeah. that kid. I guess yeah. so. I guess so. It's when I was uh, in high school, I almost got kicked. Out. I've told this story on, on this before. I almost got kicked out of school because we had a sh- you had to write a story, and mm-hmm. I wrote a story about there being no God in the Midwest, right? So I wrote this science fiction story, and it was supposed to be like two or three pages, and mine was like forty. And you had to read it in front of the class. So my story took like two class periods to read. And then it was about there being no God. And they were like, this is not appropriate for the Midwest. <laughs> people people throwing water at you, screaming, the power of Christ compels you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. I had a conversation in the principal's office about how my story was inappropriate. Like it was that kind of thing. Um, so were you reading all that? Because like I remember reading the Chronicles of Narnia. It was just one of those, like, holy shit, this is amazing. I, I loved it. Well, the thing is, that, you know, there, it, it was sort of my reading, uh, learning that you can have something more than plot go on. Because, uh, you know, which was the whole point of, of C.S. Lewis writing the books anyway, is yeah. to, to have all those Bible stories be things right. that people would pick up on. So, right. oh, yeah, I figured out Aslan was more than a lion, you know, after <laughs> right. all he was talking. And, <laughs> right. uh, the... It, and that was what sort of interested me is that you can have um, several things going on at once with a book, and instead, you know, and yeah. as plot goes on, you've got these other things going on at the same time, yeah. and that what, that's what I found interesting. It was amazing to me because I didn't realize until many, many years later that that was what that was. Like as a kid, because I read like Pierce Anthony, which had the incantations of immortality, which makes Father Time a character and you know Death a character, and so I just sort of read all of those things as if it was that that was most of my literature that I read. Like, oh well, this is just some character that is a mythological thing. Mm-hmm. Then years later, I found out like, oh no, shit, no, he was retelling the Bible through mm-hmm. his stories, but they were so great. Like as a kid, I just tore through them in like a day, mm-hmm. every book. So what else did you read? Like what else were, were Gosh, you like? Back as a kid, I I'm trying to remember. Mostly, it it really was a lot of C.S. Lewis. I went through all of those books. So like fantasy, but not like yeah. elves and dwarves. Like no, actually, and I still haven't even read the. Uh, there are certain things where I was joking with you while we were setting up that I, I live under a rock. Yeah. You know, it, I've yet to read The Hobbit. Yet to yeah. read the. Lord of the Rings, all that stuff. So, and I'm a nerd, and I don't. <laughs> I do science fiction. Like, I'm not really a fantasy, but for some reason, C.S. Lewis really like mm-hmm. the world. Just seemed like a place I wanted to be. Well, I loved it. That was how I learned about Turkish Delight. And then it wasn't until after I got through, gosh, I, I graduated from high school and went to uh, to work in Seattle, living with a, an aunt of mine, and walked through Pike Place Market, and they had a stand that said Turkish Delight, and I just about freaked out. I was like, <laughs> it's a real thing? <laughs> and so, of course, I had to buy it, and so that was my, every week I would get Turkish Delight. <laughs> so, so you guys, mo- so you write the 50-page tome in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're in sixth grade, you guys moved, you said to Fort Wayne? For, yes, we moved to Fort Wayne. Is that dad moving again? Uh, yes, and we lived on. We moved to the 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 um, the homestead farm where the, when the when the family came over from Germany, they moved to northern Indiana. They cut down the walnut trees that were on the on the parcel of land that they got and built this dovetailed uh, house that it still stands. So when plaster fell off of part of the house you could actually see the dovetail joints in the wood chinking that's underneath the 
underneath the plaster. So. so you grew up like in the place where your family came to. Yeah, yeah. And and when I went out to, you know, when I was talking about going out to Seattle, uh, when I was talking with my, my aunt's friends and everything, before they came, they, they got to the point of saying, try not to make your life sound too much like Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> right. I Could mean, you do that? Could yeah. you do that? And so I would kind of tone it down a bit. But it really was like Little House on the Prairie. We had everything except for a plague of locusts. Uh, but, you know, we had the tornadoes and all yeah. that other stuff. Living out in the country, bailing hay. And so where did you go to high school at? Went to Bel- uh, Belmont High School. Belmont. So are you still writing and doing, like, what are you doing in high school? Who are you as a high school kid? As a high school kid, what was I doing? Um, I remember we had uh, – I had a number of different teachers that – we're in the English department that sort of showed different sides of what writing could be. Uh, there was one who uh, taught science fiction. I remember reading Canticle for Leibowitz in her class, and I was asked to write a story for that class, and she really liked that. I don't even remember what it was all about. But um, was that your focus, like, in high school? Were you like, I am... It actually was science. Um, I, because I, that's what your dad did, yeah? Uh, kind of, yeah. yeah. And so with with my background, it was... I had a dual major of English and science, uh, which isn't a common one. Yeah. Uh, but uh, for a, for years, I think it wasn't until, wasn't until at least 15 years later, I had the, the record of the number of science classes taken by a student, the number of, you know credits mm-hmm. in high was, school yeah it was called the einstein award which i'm really not you know i you know all of that that crazy chemistry and everything don't i don't know enough about that but you were taking all those classes yeah i loved it well because when when i grew up we one thing that we could watch was pbs so we would always watch nova i was gonna say i know and all exactly that what stuff. you watched. yeah, yeah. And, and so I, you know, I, I remember having documentary dreams. Yeah, and, and no, so it was great back then. It was amazing. Everybody else was extremely bored in that class, and I remember going, "Yeah, this is the good one." You yeah. know, it wasn't like right. that. I had never seen it before. It was that I had actually right. seen them a couple times. I remember watching um, Cosmos with my father. Like when it would come on, like we would gather around. Like that was like mm-hmm. I watched Nova and I watched Cosmos. Mm-hmm. It was just because I took a lot of science classes too. I was a science guy, and then sort of English happened. Mm-hmm. Later, so you're doing both. You're doing, but you think you're going to go into science when you're in high school. I did, and it wasn't until I got, to, and, and that was what I, I had declared my major for when I went to Purdue uh, as as a student undergrad. And the the math was going to kill me because <laughs> I remember that the uh, I, what was it? It was um, it was my freshman algebra class where I had this poor guy he didn't know english very well and he was trying really hard to teach us algebra and i remember going through all of these torturous steps to figure out that that y equals 3x (laughs) or whatever and i thought well what does how does x feel about being only a third the value of y i i I would feel a little inferior (laughs) to y and so after a while i just went and declared my major as uh, you just felt like humanities might be more <laughs> yes yeah i think that might be better and where uh where's your mom at this time um they're up they're up in fort wayne okay. what did so. she do 
she was a school teacher. Uh-huh. She she taught first and second uh, oh, grade at a at a parochial school, and she was a uh, church organist and choir director. Wow! So we had. Uh, so she, we you had we, quite the array in your we, house. We did not miss church. <laughs> we, we didn't miss church. And you understood science. These are this yes. is a very like <laughs> this is a this is not a modern American upbringing that you've had. It really it really wasn't. It, it, in in looking at how how that went, it seemed like I was almost brought up in the fifties. Yeah. Some some parts of it seemed to be very much a ni- early nineteen fifties upbringing. I try to explain to my kids, my students, that like I grew up in a time like I come, my family is very functionally religious and very and i'm not mm-hmm. well you grew up in a time when that wasn't like a thing right like it was um they did their thing mm-hmm. and i have my thing and that was not a it wasn't a it wasn't a, it didn't keep us from loving each other doing stuff together like when i go do church things i do them i don't mm-hmm. and that doesn't exist at, like that chasm in the modern world seems very difficult for my students to understand because it's such a divisive thing and yet you grew up in that like that same kind of thing right like science religion i would say well i I don't know i I would say that it was it was even more so because my in various branches of my family Mm -hmm. you know from my grandfather to great-grandfathers who were pastors and their their religion is is something that runs very very deep in Mm -hmm. uh, various branches of my family including uh extremely conservative religious mm-hmm. feeling we you know uh doctrine was something that was actually discussed really? very often uh at, at the table what kind, uh uh what what's the do- denomination it was missouri synod lutheran gotcha so <laughs> this is very specific very specific <laughs> not lutheran it is a very specific, very specific. branch of that mm-hmm. uh, and we would have we would you know at parochial school we would have we would memorize the you know, Luther's small catechism with all of its, you know, what does this mean? And this is most certainly true. And, yeah, yeah. And all of that. Uh, oh, yes. So when you decided to go to English, where did that, were they okay with that? Were they supportive of that decision? I think so. There there was a bit of question in terms of... <laughs> what job are you going to get? <laughs> well, but the, the thing is with the family, we were we were a family of teachers mm-hmm. up until, you know, because my both of my parents met uh, in... Uh, teachers college Mm -hmm. they both became teachers uh, until my dad went over to 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 doing this thing with the university uh, which is still affiliated with education if you think about it and uh, my dad's um my dad's dad was uh, a college professor Uh at at a lutheran college so religion and teaching were big Mm -hmm. these are drivers of your yeah, quite a bit, I would say. I would say. Was it when you were growing up? Did you recognize that, or was that just a part of you know, like when you grow up as a kid, you just sort of think things are normal, or did you know, like, oh, this religion and these um, sort of ways that my my family are teaching me are a thing, um, or was it like a fish in water, like you just did it, and it wasn't until later you were like, oh, this sort of surrounded me my whole life. It well, it it did, and it wasn't until I think I got to college. Uh, that I that I saw y- y- you run into d- people from different backgrounds mm-hmm. uh, up in up in the country. Uh, we live five miles out of town. Right. We didn't. I didn't have a car until I think my junior year in high school. So uh, <laughs> when you were when I was out there, I was out there, yeah. and there wasn't anybody else around. Yeah. So it was it was 
fairly isolated. Yeah. It wasn't until I went to college that I really ran into a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. Yeah. And there were there were a number of good and bad things about yeah. about that. Uh, you could you could look at things with a certain amount of distance, uh, but at the same time, it would be difficult for you to understand where some people were coming from. Yeah. No, I grew up in a small town in Appalachia, and you know we lived. I think we were about fifteen miles outside of the small town. Same thing. Like you, I knew the kids in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And like those were the people that I hung out with. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I moved, I was just telling this story to a former student who's thinking about moving to San Francisco, where I lived for a long time. I'm like, when I got there, I had no idea what was happening. Like, it was just this big-ass place. Mm-hmm. And, like, to get a driver's license took four hours. You know, and I was used to just driving down and, like, hey, fill out my form. And you realize, oh, shit, like, things don't work that way. I did not live in the real world. You know, like my small town was not the real world in any way, shape, or form. But it was so, I'm so happy that I had that. Mm-hmm. For me, anyway, because I I didn't worry about stuff. I just kind of lived and did kid stuff and read and, you know, played in the backyard and well, it, and imagined. With, yeah, well, <laughs> and with, with the, the upbringing I had, it, there, we got a very, very clear sense of history, it, of a sense of. You're, you you came from these people. Yes. There was in my one of my dad's big things was uh, when we first moved to Indiana was genealogy, yes. where he did he spent years working on uh, genealogical research, and we had all of these pictures and all of this background, and uh, it he tied it to the history of the Lutheran Church mm-hmm. uh, in Northern Indiana, where you know one of one of the longest standing pastors there was was my great great grandfather. <laughs> so it's more you, than just a passing. It's more connection. than just a passing yeah. connection, and you constantly had this 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 sense of history, this sense yeah. of uh, family. So in breaking from it, that's that's pretty serious yeah. business. And well, we'll get to that in a second. Okay, okay. Because um, uh, so my my family's the same way. We're we are. We have our family history back to the 1300s, and we, one of the first gun makers in America, we settled Clay County, which the New York Times just ran a piece about it being the hardest place to live in America. So my family is actually, they, and we sort of, and so you come into the world, that is a thing. Like, you are a baker, and here's what that means, Mm -hmm. and that you will not ever turn against that. Like, you're born a baker, you're going to die a baker. It doesn't matter what the hell else happens in between. And there is a comfort to that in a sort of constricting way but when i talk to people who are from the city or my friends and they're like i know my grandfather but like it doesn't go back it it baffles me to to know that there are people that don't have anything back beyond one or two grandparents because that was just not how my life was presented to me Mm -hmm. is that same kind of oh yeah oh yeah you know with you know the and the, the church was always very close to that. Uh, the you can see the church steeple from the farm where I grew up. In so, Fort Wayne. Uh, yeah, up there in yeah. the country. So the and that was the one that your great great grandfather had. And that my mother also was the organist and choir director for. <laughs> so it was so it was this. It wasn't just a matter of um, of being geographically close. <laughs> it was there was it was. The congregation where, for over a hundred years, 
you know, 150 years, yeah. 160 years that the family had some connection to. Yeah. And uh, so then you go to Purdue, mm-hmm. you become an English major. Yes. You start writing. Yes. What are you doing with the writing then? Uh, What's s- happening to you in college? I was I was doing some writing. I, I got I taught. Uh, well, I didn't teach. I was I was um, I took a couple of classes with Marianne Baruch, mm-hmm. uh, who really changed how I looked at writing. I remember that it was a lot of looking in terms of image. Uh, she sort of. I remember she was always very kind and very very thoughtful. But whenever she would look at you with those big blue eyes, you you felt like she w- she knew exactly if you were trying to put on any kind of pose, and you, she at the same time made you feel comfortable. You felt extremely vulnerable, <laughs> and that you're it, fidgeting it, now as you're, you're talking. Fidget, yeah, about. yeah, no, now you are. <laughs> and and so it was really kind of yeah. <laughs> the post traumatic. I was just trying to eyes. think, but but she's such a nice person, right. and and I really learned a lot. Those from are her. the best teachers, though, like mm-hmm. the ones that you're like, oh, my bullshit doesn't work. Yeah, you you don't have you don't have a kickstand, yeah. and and she's trying to keep you from having a kickstand, yeah. which is really what writing is. And later on, you know, getting back to when I, you're teaching university students, they keep going, well, you know, this must be easy for you, <laughs> or or right. when does it get easy? Right. And the answer is, it never yeah. ever does. It's always it's always a slog. Yeah. It's always a pain in the ass. And, and you, anticlimactic. You get done, and you're like. <laughs> Yeah, well, like I, I this, this like this past week, where well, what was the joke? I, I ended up writing this in a review at one point, where it, it, as a writer, the best possible thing you can hope for. Let's say that you finish, you you work. For, well, let's say it's a novel, it takes five to ten years to write a novel. Let's say it gets accepted right off the gate. Within two years, it gets published, and then it becomes extremely popular. By the time you get through the, the copy editing, you've been with this for 12 years. You, you're absolutely sick of it. Right. You don't ever want to see it again. And if you're lucky, yeah. you get to spend the rest of your life right. reading excerpts from right. it on tour. Right. That's this is, exciting. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> this is the, uh, you know, it's the who, right? Like, here's all the new stuff we wrote. Like, we don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like play the who stuff. Yeah, the kids are all right. What about that? <laughs> yeah. What about that? Yeah, go ahead and start that. The <laughs> middle of the show is when you play the new stuff and people are like, I'm peeing now. Mm-hmm. Like, this mm-hmm. is the peeing mode. And that's part of the reason that I do the jam the way that I do is because, I ju- like, as a writer, to me, um, the stories exist as movies in my head. Like, whenever, even, I'm a nonfiction writer. And so when I write them, I can't write until the movie goes. And I really am just transcribing what I'm seeing in my head. And then I sit down to read, and I'm like, ah, this is not... I love the words, but I want you to sit in silence and experience those. Me reading them to you gets in the way of what I want you to have. And so I was trying to figure out, how do I create that, like, movie experience of what writing for me is like? I don't know if it's like that for everybody, but that's what the jam is. Well, I found it an interesting experience in that uh, the piece that I I read from was... uh, Something that I actually did write down, the way that it was on the paper that reads, you know, as yeah. you're reading it, I could tell that in front of an audience that wouldn't work. Right. Especially, well, and it also wouldn't work within nine minutes, right. you know, ten minutes. Right. 
so one of the things that I found interesting looking back was, okay, now how is how is how I told it different from how it is on paper? Right. Because they're they're essentially the same story, but they're very different. Right. And how does that you know where's the immediacy come in? Where does the right. where does the 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 structure come in? The beats become very clear when you're telling it, right? Like it's you begin to sort of. You, comedians talk about writing on stage, right? Where they're sort of like working jokes out as they're there. And like that, this is very much that like, oh shit, this is my beat and I missed it. Like you can sort of tell when you're telling it like, oh, mm-hmm. I shouldn't have followed up with a thing there, right? Like it's, that's the thing that I love so much about it is that it is, um, as a writer, that's the fascinating thing for me watching it. I can see where the beats are. Mm-hmm. And I can almost see the writers like, even though I think you told Carrie, was it Carrie that you told um, you didn't remember like what you had said? Up on you know, the there page? Was a, it, it's funny because there was a certain amount of there's a certain amount of stress <laughs> where there you you you're talking and looking back, you can only remember little two second snippets of of a particular incident. You, you just it's you know snapshots of yeah. terror as you're going, yeah. and I do remember that. About two thirds of the way through, my mouth was so dry that my teeth, my lips were stuck to my teeth. I do remember that, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the actual story part. But really, people, it's actually really fun. Yeah, just, just so you know, and but, everybody goes to the same thing. They agree, and then they freak out, and then they're terrified, and then it's over, and they're like, "That was great." Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to do it again, but that was totally great. Well, you probably saw that when I was when I walked in because I went in forty five minutes early just yeah. to sort of. Get the lay of the land. Oh, it's in the round. Yeah. Oh, oh it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. And then, <laughs> and then you said, he goes, oh yeah, and you know it'll be fine. It'll and then be. I went and on. everybody did. Everybody loved it. It's mm-hmm. a very supportive group, but it's writers are freaked out when they get there. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, because writing is the opposite. Of it's that. the opposite <laughs> of that. You you sit in a chair and you're you're. It's a very solitary activity. Yeah. It's sort of like the, a biathlon where yeah. you. All, all quiet, and then, yeah. oh, here you are in the the perfect storm of, of social right interaction. And why are people saying things to me while I'm doing this? What is the clapping and the stomping <laughs> and the hissing? What the yes. hell is all yes. that stuff? Uh, so you're in, so you're so you have this teacher in college. Okay, yes, yes. And um, she she's the one that sort of does she begin to change the way you look at writing, or to the or just sort of begin to shape your experience as a writer. Uh, a whole lot where we, you know, she had me thinking about image. She had me thinking about, uh, she, she was really patient, really thoughtful. Marianne gave me great suggestions for, for writing. Um, uh, Bridget Kelly was a, a writer that was over, I think in, uh, Urbana at the time. And she visited and read and, I remember thinking, wow, they're reading stuff that hasn't been published yet. So this is, wow, this is right. great. And then she she read a poem that just blew me away. And that really kind of changed things, too. Mm-hmm. Um, um, how? Uh, just the, um, and I don't know if it, it has anything to do with the fact that, that uh, Bridget Kelly's uh, really steeped a lot in, in religious imagery and and religious background as well but just the way that a a poem is more than something about yourself it's more than uh it it, it's this sort of rising and falling action that that moves and 
you move with it and you're not entirely sure where it's going, mm -hmm. but you're interested at the same time. And then when she drops you at the end of the poem, then it you're just you're stuck trying to figure out how did we get here mm -hmm. <laughs> and and that I really found interesting yeah I did fall away from writing quite a bit after um, after I graduated where I really wanted to um, try to make you know after you graduate from college you want to just try to have some sort of stable existence yeah and I did not experience that. Uh, I kind of, <laughs> yeah. I kind of did. It didn't turn out that way because I ended up going to teach in in Russia, and <laughs> where all the people looking for then, stable jobs yeah, go. I was trying to come up with with <laughs> trying to narrow down which story I should tell for for Writers Jam because I mean there was the you know I taught over there and uh, taught over in Moscow in I guess what could be considered now a golden age of openness when in uh 1994 so 1994. right after Perestroika like right the, the uh that whole big scene where Yeltsin is standing on top of a tank you were there you know, no it was oh. that was just like a year before I was gonna say yeah so it was it was just a year after yeah bananas were new there, there, not in and the world. so everyone, yeah, and everyone <laughs> wanted bananas, and I still remember there weren't any trash cans, but people had banana peels just stacked all over all the signal boxes at every intersection because hey, bananas are new; these are great. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, that really, so I don't know. I, you know, you're trying to go for a stable existence, and here I am teaching English, and yeah, I feel like Moscow. you've said a thing and then not done the thing, right? Like I want a stable existence, Russia. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yes. <laughs> yes. This was, if one of my students said that, I'd be like, "Oh, you haven't thought this through at all." Well, and I don't know. I, I don't. I, yeah. And, but I don't know if it was my lot. I, I keep thinking. You know, there are people that seem to be naturally. Yes. They, they just have this propensity towards stability. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's me. Because yeah. uh, you, you, you can't write and and and, and writing is ex is working through life. That's what I think writing. It is. worked for Wallace Stevens, though. You know, he just so he you can did choose insurance. one, okay, right? Like, <laughs> you go, but, well, here's the one that was normal. Well, and I, you know, what over in Russia, I, I was sitting there going, okay, well, maybe there's something that I can get going over here, okay. and um, I had, I was fighting off jobs with a stick over there. It was, you know, at the time with the openness and yeah. everything, people wanted to learn English. They wanted right. to learn American English, yeah. And I was just to the point of getting a job. At an embassy uh, for the ambassador of Jesus. Tanzania. Ah, I'm actually doing work with a company working in Tanzania. See, well, it, and the, the 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 person that that taught at the same school on the on the west side of Moscow as me, we would sometimes ride the the metro mm -hmm. out the out there, and it was a slow line, and it would be above ground, and you would have these snowflakes sifting mm -hmm. in through the vents, <laughs> and it was cold, and she said. As everything I've, we know, Russia. As everything, right? yes, like, yes, it literally yep. is. <laughs> it, you, 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 you learn to toughen up. And the, she said, you know, I've, I've been out here too long. It's time for me to go back home. And I think mostly it was the fact that she had a, a love affair that fell through. Yeah. And it's at that point that suddenly she doesn't want to be, you know, away from Canada yeah. anymore. So she goes, well, um, I'm just going to trade over the job to you. And how about that? I said, sure. I thought, God, this is going to be great. I'm going to be you know, working for an ambassador mm -hmm. as a private tutor. 
the world is my oyster. I can get references, and I can teach anywhere on the planet I want to. The next week, I got appendicitis. Oh. And so then I got to see that was another story I was thinking of doing for the jam. Appendicitis the, in the, Russia. The, the, the pioneer-style Russian appendectomy. <laughs> but... um. And then after that, I just kind of wanted to come home. (laughs) I had back (laughs) surgery last year that they couldn't use anesthesia for. And right before I went in for the thing, they gave me the block Mm -hmm. to bite on. And I'm like, it's the 21st century. Wow. (laughs) fucking block. (laughs) So I'm familiar with that. Like, all you want to do is nothing. Right. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know... Then back you, to the world, yeah, please. Yeah, went back to the world, went into corporate America, and within a year, I they they, they dissolved the company. And so when so did it's you just graduate, one thing after another. When did you graduate college? Graduated in 94. Okay, so, you're, so we're about the same age. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so right after that is when you went to Russia. Mm-hmm. That was your big, stable thing <laughs> in your teaching. And then yes. how long are you there? I was there for uh, about nine months. <laughs> so mom and dad think this is a good idea or like, well, that's just you they, being they you. Were, they were kind of scared. Yeah. They were kind of scared. But they were scared because it was Russia, not because. Right. Yeah, right. they were like, they're going to put you in it. Because they grew up, I mean, because mm-hmm. in the 80s, they were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, and then you come back home and you work for a company for a year? Um, well, not even quite that. And then it dissolves. And so that you're so your big stable plan, no job lasts more than a year so far. It's not going well out of college. Right. And, and, <laughs> and so then I thought, you know, OK, well, I'm going to go for as stable as I can. And the very next thing that I Can't did wait for this. was, well, it was a it was a at a mutual fund company. Oh, so that was a good time for that. Yeah. Uh, and oh, gosh, that, there, there were pluses and minuses to that as well. I mean, it was about around 96, 97. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was about the time that the rating was beginning, so mm-hmm. that wasn't going out of business. It was not, and it still isn't. <laughs> yeah. But it, and I just simply stopped writing, so there wasn't when a, you were there. Mm-hmm. So were you writing in Russia? I was doing journaling. I was, you yeah. know, writing. Oh, and actually, I take that back. I was, I was, um, I landed a, a. Of course, this was a non-paying gig, but I got a. Uh, I got to do. Guest columns. I was a guest columnist for the Decatur Daily Democrat, nice. the newspaper, the right. only daily newspaper in Adams County, uh, Indiana. Right. I, I don't think it is now. And I was writing. I was. I was Mr. Correspondent from Russia, right. and I would write little little things about my experience in <laughs> trying to buy a toothbrush at a grocery store. Uh-huh. And, Bringing and a little bit of, of Russia to the folks in Decatur. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, or, or the mafia that would come to <laughs> McDonald's. Right. Stuff like that. So you you work in a mutual fund company. Now you're not writing at all. Are you doing anything else? Like, are you um, doing any creative stuff, or are you just like, I'm just going to work at this mutual fund company, and that'll be that? That was pretty much it. That was pretty much and it. How long did that take before you were like, this is not the stability that I wanted? Ten years. Really? I did ten years. So you didn't write for ten years? Right. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the things that happened... Uh, you know, where you've got these things that, that surface and resurface in life. I was at the symphony in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And Beautiful. lo and behold, who was coming up the aisle during intermission than Marianne Baruch? And so I, I thought, wow, this is blue great. Eye. I get to see her. This blue eyes, blue, eye. blue eyes, <laughs> you know, red hair. And I walk right up to her. I said, hi, Marianne, it's me, Dave. And she was there either with, I think it was with her husband and then with a, another visiting writer. 
and you know there was one of the things that I guess they were, yeah. and she introduced me uh, to them as Dave, someone who used to write. Oh, that's the best thing ever. And I just did. I remember. Yeah, it just <laughs> pretty dribble, much. Like, it just. I just. <laughs> I kind of wanted to crawl up, curl up into a ball, and and I do shit like that to my. I got two students that were amazing, and I'm like, oh, you used to have talent. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dave Blumenberg, someone who used to write. And then I oh uh, I just was like, oh, crap. So then I... Did she have like a smile when she said it, or was this like a, it I was am just sad this, that you It was just write. those big those big eyes that yeah. could look straight into your soul. Yeah. And I just thought, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go and listen to some more Brahms. And... <laughs> <laughs> then within I would say about about two years later I I sent in um I sent in some some work and got accepted into the graduate program for writing and so then Where I at? quit at Purdue so you went back went back to Purdue to get an MFA mm-hmm. so you're one of the MFA people I'm one of the MFA people <laughs> yes yes this is br- like every week it bubbles up like <laughs> the MFA or not the MFA is like one of the greatest worthless debates in English and writing. It helps some people. It's, yeah, that's it's, what I mean. It's worthless. Like, if it works for you, it's great, and if it doesn't, don't do it. Mm-hmm. But people, it is – I don't know if you saw in the last two weeks, there have been all these huge publications writing about, like, MFAs or not the MFAs. And, the, you know, every other week it bubbles up into a mm-hmm. shitstorm of worthless argument. Well, you know – Because it, it worked for you. Is it a commodity or is it not a commodity? Is it is it a way to, to get to write? Is it a way to network? Yeah. You know, all it of depends that on what your goal is. Yes, it, the it really answer does. is yes and no. Mm-hmm. It dep- I tell students all the time, like, graduate school is a high-paying – you know, you, it, you pay a lot if it's a good one for a mentorship, for an apprenticeship. And if you do it right – I went to Berkeley for mine for um, journalism. Mm-hmm. I've never applied for a job since I graduated. It cost me a sh- – I'm still paying off the loan. But mm-hmm. it, that the trade-off was I was now in a network of people that had been trained as an artisan in a certain way. And so it was worth it to me. Mm-hmm. But I understand why other kids from Appalachia didn't want to take on $50,000 of debt because mm-hmm. that is a mountain. Mm-hmm. And you got to know what you're doing. So yep. did you know what you were doing? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, you know, it, it's it, – as with anything, you, you, you go into life and you just like, okay, I, I'm going to teach. Oh, I'm going to go to Russia and things are going to go out, right. go just fine. What could possibly, what go, could possibly wrong? go wrong? Or, you know, so many things have, have happened where people just, even sure. before I went into grad school, people said, Dave, God wants you to be a writer. Yeah. He just, I'm like, well, apparently, apparently something's happening. Yeah. So, so was it a, you go in what, 2007? Six, seven? 2006. Six. No, 2000, yes, 2006. Six. So you graduated 2008? 2009. It's a three-year it's, program. Oh, shit. So it's a day. You're paying a lot of money for the three-year yeah, program. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what do you do? So it, how does your family feel about this? Oh, when I, first, this point, when I broke like, the news. I wasn't going to break the news until I found that I got accepted. And so then I, I Because this time you're an adult. Like, you've been working yeah. in the corporate world for 10 years. Absolutely. Like, and now it's, fuck it, I'm going to go be a writer. Right. <laughs> and, or, you know, or at least teach. And you know, there there are a lot of things. You know, if you're a writer, you can actually, it doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be something that you're stuck in academia. Yeah. You can do all kinds of other stuff sure. and then write around the edges if the discipline's there and all yeah, of that. Yeah. So, uh, but Many yeah, people the, don't see a three-year MFA program as like, oh, I'll have lots of options. 
<laughs> Correct. Right. Like, Correct. I can't imagine that was the conversation that they had. But you know, after ten years, I, I thought, you know, I, I th- there was a point in 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 what corporate American can do to a person where you just sort of need to go back to uh, there's something that I used to do well. Yeah. I think I need to do something yeah. that I feel I can do well. Make things. And I always tell I have to, if mm-hmm. I don't make something, I feel like my day has been a waste. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a little thing, it has to be mine, and it has to be something that, you know, I can do something with, mm-hmm. or else my soul dies. Yeah, or you know, when you've got people that don't necessarily know where you're coming from or what the ultimate goal is, and having well, the, I couldn't watch things like Office Space. I couldn't watch <laughs> uh, shows like Arrested Development, <laughs> where where you've got people that are that are insane right that are in control and you're not driving the bus right and you just sort of have to keep going along well sure yeah yeah okay yeah, yeah I'll, I, I will incorporate that feedback yeah. your tks uh, report needs to be yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know this is this is a boss stitch office yeah, this yeah. Is, yeah i just yeah had to had to leave and so everybody was behind that mm-hmm. once you sort of explained to them that you were doing this and it would be best if everybody was okay with that the very first question was what are you going to do with it yeah and I just said, right. Yeah. That's what else do you what do you, do you say to that? <laughs> right. I, 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 architecture. You know. Yeah, architecture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you go, and it was wonderful. I learned a lot. There were you know, there were some people there that that totally changed how I looked at writing. Mm-hmm. I, there there was the whole inspiration based idea of of how to write, and uh, one of the poets that was there, Mary Leader, had had me um, one of the first paying gigs I had was I was supposed to type out a transcript of, of a couple of lectures she did for Warren Wilson University at Warren Wilson College. And the the things that she said about uh, writing really changed how I looked at it. She said, how many of you uh, write from inspiration? Of course, everybody is going to raise their hand yeah. for that. Uh, and how, given a, given a month, how, how many hours do you feel inspired? <laughs> you know, take a moment. You right. can write down the number of hours, right. and, and you know, divide by that number. <laughs> and she goes, "You're supposed to write every day. What the hell do you do right. for the rest of that month? Uh, you know, do you just sit there and look out the window and write bad poetry about looking out the window, yeah. like oh, so many students have a tendency to do? Right. Uh, no, you have to come up with something. Right. And so she she really talked a lot about you know. Ulipo and and various ways that you can trick yourself into yeah. into writing, and it doesn't necessarily have to start off with inspiration. No, I, so I'm a recovering alcoholic, and when you're in AA, the program, the first mm-hmm. thing that you do is you go to 90 meetings in 90 days. That's that is what they will tell you to do every day. 90 days, go. Don't make a decision about whether you're an alcoholic. Just get your ass there. 90 days, 90 hours, do it. That's three months. And mm-hmm. if you do that, you'll have an answer to the question of do you have a problem or not. And so I tell my students, write for 90 days in a row for just 20 minutes, half hour. Write for 90 days in a row. And they always start by saying, well, that's easy. And I'm like, the first three days are easy when you're like, here's what I want to say. And then day four, you're like, I actually don't have what anything to fucking say. say. Yeah, like, I thought I had all these things to say. <laughs> As it turns out, I am boring and stupid. And that's when you become a writer. When you can say, okay, I don't know what I want to say. And 
because then it becomes a battle to find your voice. And not what are you going to sound like, but like what is it that you are? That to me is what writing is. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what you're writing about. That voice of what you are comes through in that story. Mm-hmm. Whether you're writing about whether it's fiction about somebody else or nonfiction or poetry, like Hemingway reads very different than Fitzgerald, right? Mm-hmm. And just the language of how they write, I don't know how they were because I didn't know them, but I have a sense of who they were as people. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's to me that inspiration, like writing from inspiration, always has driven me crazy. Well, yeah, because you. It, you end up falling into not doing stuff, or if you're not pro- if you're not properly inspired, right? You know, with with me, I have, you know I have this sort of repressive tendency where <laughs> you you come up with a good idea in the middle of the night, you're like, okay, I'll I'll remember it in the morning, yeah. Or I'm driving, no, I, you know, it's yeah. like you didn't stop and and everything and put that yeah. crap down, and so unless it was something like. I, anything that got written down for for the longest time was something I would. I, it's like frost heaving up a rock out of the out of the ground. It was this long, painstaking, never ending process. And in in going to grad school or, or doing some of this stuff, I would have you know I've got one right now. Right. I, I had a notebook and a you pen, have a journal, and you have a, a clipboard. <laughs> I, I, every possible option. And then if it, if something comes up, I write it down. Yeah. And and. Even that, it just it can just sit there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Dana Roser, poet who taught up at uh, who teaches up at Butler, she invited me to something called the Grind, mm-hmm. and it's sort of where you have to write something and send it to everyone on your email tree across the country every day, and if you don't do it, then you get dropped. Really. And that's terrifying because you you are going to write complete crap and everybody is going to see that you have written complete yeah. crap, but then everybody else is showing their complete crap too. But How long does it have to be? Like 500 words or it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Just it can, something, just something. And I did that for, I've done it for, for two months and it, there is a lot of crap, yeah. but then sometimes absolutely fantastic things will come out. Right. And but that's the you, that's right? Like fantastic. that's the you. Mm-hmm. I was just telling a young writer this the other day. Like when a, a professional writer, whatever that means, you write to. F- I mean, it's like panning for gold. Like you just have to put the words out and go. There it is. That's me. And then you throw everything else out and go, and you expand that nugget into the thing. Mm-hmm. But you can't just sit there and be like, I'm going to wait until the nugget comes because it doesn't ever fucking come. Right. Ever. Right. Unless. So- my writing partner does, but he writes in his head. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like his first draft on the page is actually his third draft. Oh, my brain doesn't work that way. Not either. Yeah, I can't do that. I can do 5,000 words in a day and I'm like, in there is a sentence that I will keep. You know, like <laughs> I don't know where. Um, and he'll write a paragraph in a day mm-hmm. and it'll never get changed because he just sat there thinking about the paragraph until the paragraph was what he wanted it to be. And then, but it's the same thing. Like you're painting for gold. Mm-hmm. Um, so, now you've written, you do poem, poetry, essays. Have you have you done a book yet, novel? I've got, uh, actually, as far as prose, no. I, I just actually, going back to the, the you know, where the anticlimactic bit of, <laughs> of writing, where I, I've got a, I've finished a manuscript, I'm like, hey, now I can st- send this out. But you, it's just, okay, great, I've, I've finished a book, and now that 
gets sent out. So yeah. it's it's just moving on to another step. But you have, but it's times. a novel. You, the novel's done. No, it's it's Essays? poetry. Oh, poetry. poetry. Mm-hmm. So is it a book or a chapbook or is it a full? It's got. I've got a full manuscript. Wow. So yes. So is that ultimately what you do? Like poetry is that the poetry? Thing? Yes, that was that was my MFA. Yeah. And I uh, I did creative nonfiction in you know doing my grad mm-hmm. uh, and. I find that interesting, I, where you can apply the the things of you know the the elements of poetry to to a prose piece. How so? Where you you can you can have the same sort of compressed language. Uh-huh. You can have that same same sense of of imagery and odd slant to detail, where you you edit out a lot of unnecessary language or, or what people would consider prosiness. Mm-hmm. And and still have a really tight sense of, of structure, mm-hmm. uh, and looking at the overlap for that, and 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 creative nonfiction, I think, is a really good uh, medium for a lot of those elements that are in poetry. Yeah, it's interesting because that's what I do. I hate poetry. <laughs> uh, I love Leaves of Grass and everything else. I'm like, I like like Stephen Crane because it's like five sentences, right? Mm-hmm. Like a man said to the universe, you know. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I can, I get what that is about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm always fascinated to hear the ways in which people from different backgrounds. I've had lots of talk with fiction. Fiction people just fascinate me because I can't, I don't make shit up. Like I do, the stuff that I have made up is just fucking terrible. It's awful. I have no sense of storytelling. Within that environment, I mean, mm-hmm. it's the structures are the same, the frameworks are the same, but whatever comes out of my head is just like a big lump of shit. Mm-hmm. But with creative nonfiction and and stuff, that makes sense to me. I can like take the world and craft the meaning from that. So I I've not talked to any poets in terms of how do you distill that moment into it. Like, what's the process that you go through for like, oh, here's the, this is what I want to say. I, well, I don't know. I think that it, there's with with poetry, you you're doing the same sort of thing where you 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 find something that that strikes you, and there are a lot of different ways you can approach it. Where a novel is essentially the working out of a of a problem. Mm-hmm. It's it's working out something and seeing it through to a conclusion. Yep. Uh, or combining elements and seeing what the result might be. Yep. These sort of you know characteristics in in people with with poetry it's a lot of it's the same thing a lot of the things that i've been writing especially lately have have been like that are they more like short story so like when you read a short story collection right like they're generally themed but they're not necessarily together like mm-hmm. you don't read edgar Allan poe short stories and are like oh here's the this is what happened in this mm-hmm. story is that the way the poetry like, are you answering a single question in your manuscript, or is it a series of like short stories built thematically around an idea? They can be. Some of the writing projects that I'm working on do that. Do uh, answer a question. Try to answer a yeah. question, or or um, through a series of these poetic vignettes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, here one example of, or just seeing what what comes of of doing a particular project. Uh-huh. One thing that stemmed from some of the things that I, I learned when I was talking when I was working with with Mary Leader was uh, text randomizations mm-hmm. and w- in you know the year after I graduated from you know the grad program and I'm looking for a job and I, I, I'm trying to come up with some sort of, of structure discipline to to get writing together 
I, I went to my neighborhood McDonald's three blocks away every day at the same time, ordered the same thing to eat, and I sat with a paperback copy of Last of the Mohicans and would do randomizations on a page mm-hmm. of things and then type out the transcripts. A lot of it's busy work, but some of this is, again, getting back to this idea of tricking yourself into to, to coming up with, with the draft yeah. to, to work from. And what I found interesting in this project, a lot of which is just dead, is the, the drafts that came out of these fell into three particular uh, groups. One of them, obviously, war. Another one, obviously, race. <laughs> and another one, which surprised me, was a pseudo-autobiography, where one of the minor characters in the novel is named David. And, of course, your eye gravitates to that y- your own name on any page. It just pops out at you. And what I would do is I would just look, a- look at the page, circle the first word that, that I saw, and then the next word that, that popped out, I would circle that, draw an arrow to it. And then I would just draw them together in terms of without syntax. The, the, the pieces that came out that were pseudo-autobiography were really kind of surprising. Mm-hmm. Where uh, there were, you know, David does this, David thinks this, David creeps through the underbrush. <laughs> and th- that started making me think a little bit in terms of, what can I make David, you know, in, yeah. in quotes, do? And what sort of problems do I see working out? And that allows you a certain amount of distance right. so that you can, it's, it's not you. And you can tease some of these problems out that are, that are suggested by the text and that you can throw in later. But this is why I find the fiction people so fascinating, because exactly that, right? Like when I talked to Angela Jackson Brown, like she was, her I think I don't give a shit what anybody says. I think all fiction has elements of autobiographical stuff in there because you have to. The characters come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. They have to come from something you've experienced. Right. Even if it's the opposite of what you've experienced. They mm-hmm. have to. I don't so I don't ever anytime fiction people tell me they made it up, I'm like, well, we just disagree. You didn't. Mm-hmm. That that is a representation of something you've seen. But you control it. Right? You can make it do the thing that you want to, even in the what if scenario. Even in the, oh, shit, I thought they were going to go in this direction, but they clearly have to go in that. You're still setting the rocks in the river. Right. Where the river's going around. Whereas the creative nonfiction is a little bit, maybe it's not different. Maybe I just haven't thought it through enough yet. But, like, my fa- the, I'm writing the history of my family, and, and sort of they're, basically it's answering the question that my liberal friends always ask me, which is why do those people in Appalachia vote against their self-interest? Like okay, why? Right, so I'm right. like, there's actually a very historical reason why they do the thing that they do, and I'm going to answer that question by telling you the story of my family, who were rich and part of the rural court and came to America and made guns and founded this very rich part of Appalachia, and then everybody got poor. So I'm going to tell you why 100 years later they don't vote for Democrat. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that they like Republicans. I'm just going to tell you why they don't vote for Democrats, because you don't seem to understand that. That story happened. I don't get to put the rocks in the road, right? Like, or in the, in the road. I don't get to put the rocks in the river. <laughs> um, and so to me, it's distilling. I have to find where the rocks are. Whereas fiction seems to be, oh, I need to work this thing out. I can put this rock here and make the character have to make a choice. Does that make sense? Yeah, well. But I don't can, know if it's as arbitrary as I've made it out to be. <laughs> it, I don't think it, it, it's quite as arbitrary. One of the big challenges of, of creative nonfiction is, is if you're going to be truthful, you can't really change 
right. what happens. At all. And that actually makes it very difficult. Right. You know, you, when I went into the creative writing, uh, creative nonfiction class with with Bit Wen, you you had a sense at the beginning that, hey, I'm a subject matter expert. Of course I can write what this is going to be nothing. And no, that's a problem because yeah. you're the subject matter expert and you see all these other elements. What do you weed out? What yeah. do you actually... And that that can pose its own problems. Yeah. But but at the same time, depending on how you you look at how you live life with right. these with these things that happen like a book or God right. wants you to be a writer, <laughs> you can you see certain elements of of literature or writing or the structure of a novel or the structure of of certain recurrences yeah. that that happen. And but we put those as creative nonfiction folks. I always tell my students, you are ascribing a meaning to a thing that at the time had no meaning. Like when you look back, you're like, oh, this is what this meant. And at the time you were like, fuck, I'm just going to do that. Mm -hmm. Like you don't really, you know what I mean? Like very few people are like, well, if I make this decision, clearly three years from now, this will be the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so my book, in, like I, my creative nonfiction is never really about me. I'm in it, but it's. It's always about other people, right? Because it's I'm not that interesting. But the things that are swirling around me, I find interesting. Mm -hmm. And that is the fiction, I guess, part of it. Because when you're trying to figure out why people did things, I don't know. I don't know. I only know what they've read, I'm only or what they wrote, what they you know, what was written about them. But I have to then construct a narrative. And that's mm -hmm. in that in that sense, it's not that different from fiction, right? Or poetry. Well, yeah, because you're you're ordering things that actually happened using the architecture of a novel. Yeah, or you know, you're you're doing that sort of thing right. to to add structure to a story that yeah. you know. So, do you, but you gravitate towards the poetry. You gravitate towards. Was the novel just a, a thing? Like, were you experimenting like with that form, or is that a form you like too? I I don't. I I kind of wanted to play with with prose in terms of. The best I can come up with, like for the the project that I mentioned in, uh, you know, with the jam, w is a series of of episodes. Yeah, and it's still sort of lyric in that mm -hmm. in that idea where, like with poetry, you can have these little snapshots or these moments or these mini narratives, and and have them them work together. Yeah. The thing that really made me start looking closely at, at writing something that was in prose was something that happened uh, when I was out in in Nebraska with my over at my grandfather's house. Speaking of long term history, we found a box that my great grandfather of my great grandfather's manuscripts, who was oh. a teacher and a painter and a composer, but not the one who founded the church. Not the one who different founded the one. church. Different one, and he for a long time was a, was a Lutheran school teacher in Columbus, Indiana. And we found 100-year-old uh, musical scores. And we also found out that he had a first wife that, he, who, that died before she turned 20. And in looking at these older manuscripts, we see that a lot of these hymn tunes that he wrote, the, scripture, the scriptures that he chose can be seen in in different ways one it can it certainly fits a liturgical need at the same time you can see that he's grieving for this first wife yeah and so since i had some sort of musical background 
one of the projects that, that the family kind of gave me was, was this box of music. And well, what is it? What can we do with it? Uh, and can you translate some of this stuff? So I, I taught myself old script German so that I could, I could actually read some of these old things that were written the same year that the Titanic went down. Uh, if not, you know, and before, and looking at the the arc of his story, where you've got a lot of the same things that are happening to me, where he was a teacher, he had, you know, he's trying to make his peace with the strictures of of the society that he's living in, and with him, he had all of these children that he touched as a, as a, as a teacher, he had all these children that he had in this family with his, with his second wife. He never recovered from this first, yeah. this first loss. And that really made me look closely at, can I tell that kind of a story in prose and making myself try that yeah. and, I still keep trying to shoehorn back into to poetry, where the the narrative itself can be told in 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 yeah. as a mosaic almost, yeah. which is really all I've got left. You've got all of these pieces of paper, right, and right. all of these all of these notes and things, and so that was what made me start looking at prose more. Uh, I'm finding that a lot of the the more successful pieces end up being poetry, that yeah. are that it stem from that particular project. Yeah, a part of the and then we'll wrap up. A part okay. of the issue that I'm having with with my piece is exactly that. Like, how do you bring to life people that exist in their journals and their papers? And I like I hate narrative stories. I am a I don't like mosaics. Like my wife is a paint, uh, photographer, so mm-hmm. and she's visual. So like. You know, when she starts to tell a story, she's like, "Well, here's the backstory, and here's this." And it, as a as a as a storyteller, drives me crazy because it's not linear. But to her, the linear is the mosaic. And like, once all the pieces are up on the board, you'll see how they all connect. But I'm not going to connect them. Mm-hmm. That's not how she tells the story. Mm-hmm. Right? That drives me crazy. <laughs> but when I tell stories, that's not how I tell them. Me, like, I very much like the Tarantino style, where it's like, "Look, here is a series of vignettes that are loosely related. It doesn't ascribe a meaning to them." Because life doesn't have a meaning. Life only has a meaning later, like at the end, when you look back and go, here was the path that I clearly was on. But Mm -hmm. like I said, when you're doing it, so as I'm writing my piece, I have this, how do you create the mosaic that still holds together in a way that people have that expectation? When something comes after another, they expect it to be connected. And if you don't, you have to have a really good explanation for why they're not connected and why they should hang with it. But with that old-time creative nonfiction, it's really hard to do. So is your novel about him, or is it, is it the question of loss and recovery? Well, what I found interesting in looking through this is that we, this idea of recurrence, the same things happen again and again. The, the things that I, that I find myself dealing with are the things that he dealt with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and looking at these... At, at these pieces, is there is there some sort of counterpoint that that interweaves the discovery of the box, looking through the manuscripts, and my own life? Yeah, uh, that that I actually found interesting. So, is it fiction or nonfiction? Or yes, that one. Yes, <laughs> yes. Right yeah. now, it's yes. That's one of the 
the various projects that's still trying to kind of gel. David Foster, I always, I always bring this up. David Foster Wallace said, "The longer you write, the more you realize fiction and nonfiction are the same thing. It is simply a matter of perspective as to what you say is true, because we know the thing that you see. Ask a cop what's the way that is the least." likely way to put together the events that happened in a traumatic situation, eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. Because we don't see everything. When we're in danger, we don't see everything. Mm-hmm. And so be, what we have decided as a society, well, if you saw it, then we'll write that down and that's nonfiction and that's the way it happened. Like, well, there's a really good chance that what you saw, you are filling in the blanks and turning that into a fictionalized account of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we think about f- fiction and nonfiction, like even though I'm writing stuff that really happened, it it's the thing that I know that happened. But if I got it from somebody else's perspective, they may have a completely different take on the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And they may have seen it a different way and understood the motivations a different way and the outcomes a different way. So why is mine real? Yeah. Well, because the, the family's perspective on... on that great-grandfather, very, very different than the perspective that I've got. He died 10 years almost to the day before I was born. So I, I don't know of him th- except through those stories, but now I'm looking at this box. Yeah. And the way I'm piecing things together, that was one thing that, as I would tell the story, people would get a little uncomfortable because that's not the, that's not the perspective that they have of this, of this person, this character. Yeah. And The first wife being... Being that one part. of those elements, yeah. yes. They don't like the fact that you think that it is a thing that he carried with him. Well, and it's indisputable, really. I mean, there are things that you you know you're looking at it going, hmm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but all, I mean, also the, the 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 other argument is like, why would you think this human being would marry somebody that they don't love and care about and could easily discard when they die? Mm-hmm. Well, and you they, know, like, well, yeah, you know, but they and she and he did love her. It, it, it was just in a different way. Sure. You know, you had first you had first love. Yeah. That first love never got old. Yeah. She was always beautiful. Right. And it was always perfect because it, it it's untouchable right. now. And that's that in itself is an interesting story. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, thank you for coming by today. We've been doing this for about an hour and five minutes. Oh Probably, my gosh. It goes right. fast. Yes, it, it always does. It goes fast. <laughs> um and what so uh what's the manuscript? What's the name? Is it out? No, I mean it, I know you sent it out or are you sending it out now? It's called Simulcast. And that's we're hoping that that gets published. Soon. Soon. Very soon. Well, thank you for coming in. Wonderful to be here. Thanks. Well, there you have it. That is the last of our Lost Podcast episodes. We have four. Going to try and make sure that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, you can always follow what we do at thegeekypress.com. You can find out about our events. You can find out about our books. You can find out about our readings. You can find out about our retreats. You can listen to the podcast. If you get my drift, you can do everything that you need at thegeekypress.com. Every few weeks, if everything goes well, We'll be releasing new podcast interviews with writers from not just Indiana and the Midwest, but from all over the country. So we look forward to you spreading the word, getting back to us. Always, if you have something to say, go to thegeekypress.com. You can comment, send me an email. I will get back to you. 
assuming I find it interesting enough to get back to you about. So until the next time, take care. Have a good day. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye.